you always have to have kind of a screensaver in this space. You know, what do you always come back to when someone's talking, I don't know, about some boring thing? And then, uh, you know, you just think back to your screensaver. Okay, well, why is this, why is this relevant or interesting or necessary? And then you make some choices about what you will carry on listening to, <laughs> what would you encourage and what you might change. So, yeah, I think that layering of experiences helps me to manage and uh, continue to be in this space at the moment. Catherine is director of the Politics and Governance Programme at the Overseas Development Institute. Her past work has included academic posts, several development NGOs, and the OECD's Development Assistance Committee. With this in mind, it's interesting that the recurring theme of this conversation is a rather ambivalent relationship with the aid sector. She has clearly worked with some of the marquee names, but When you look closer, this has been in roles that are critical or reformist in nature. Equally, in talking about her work, she is acutely conscious of the seriousness and the stakes of the overall development agenda, but equally conscious of the very real limitations on capital D developments as a a business or a set of, of concrete institutions and policy priorities and funding streams. In some, then, this is really a conversation about striking that balance, about finding a niche that is professionally honest and moves things forward in a sector that has more than its share of blind alleys. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get into it. So the place I usually start these is super straightforward. When you meet someone socially, I'm not going to say at the pub, given uh, COVID times, but when you meet someone socially under normal circumstances, how do you describe your overall career path? You know, what you do in, in kind of that broader sense? Well, my path is one thing, and then actually what I do is something a bit different. Um, And it's funny because I was just trying to explain to my 16-year-old son my path yesterday. But what I do is I advise governments and other actors about the best ways of doing business in developing country contexts. And I, I sell my knowledge and the research and analytical capacities that I have. And that's how I earn my living. And how did I get there? I mean, it was a, it was a bit circuitous as a journey. I mean, I'd never imagined that I would necessarily end up doing this. I mean, I've always been driven by passions in things rather than function. So I, for a long time, was very interested in Africa and politics in Africa and Africa's future and Africa as a place where I had the most fun. I I lived um, in Nigeria between the ages of three and five and then have lived intermittently there. And before I started working, I was actually looking for an opportunity to go and spend more time in Africa, really. 
And I could have been a journalist, but I was like, mm, I'm not really that curious for the like the story of the moment. And so development as a sector provided me with that opportunity. And really, that was that was really why and still is really why I continue to, after some 25 years, hang on. So it was very much about my passion for the continent, my sense of really wanting to um, to be another voice and to be a critical voice in the development space because I don't really believe in it as an ideology. And I do think development is an ideological construct. And I and I'm I I'm I've got that luxury because in the back of my mind always uh, I have the fear of being someone upon whom development could be done. Uh, that gives me a kind of keeping one eye open as I sleep uh, in my development bed about not being too not being taken in. And and I think it's a healthy scepticism because there's a lot of very committed individuals in the space who, by virtue of being in the space, imagine that they're they're doing good. And so um, it gives me that, yeah, it's it's a distance, a healthy distance um, that I think is really vital um, in order to be realistic about what possibilities uh, development as an enterprise offers for advancing or engaging with societies that are really complex. And I think my particular position as someone who's, you know, born in Scotland, lived, brought up in London, lived a little bit in Nigeria um, and travelled quite a lot in Africa, it's uh, it's a perspective that is quite uh, natural for me uh, to have. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that was that was a rather long winded response to um, your question, but it does it does stir up this kind of thing when you when you're when you're you know forced to kind of think about how you got here. It does. It's um, it's never that straightforward. Given that longer narrative, it's interesting to me that you started in what I'm going to say is a relatively conventional part of the aid sector, namely in NGOs based in, in London and then in Senegal and, and West Africa. Yes, yes. I don't think it was that conventional, actually, because um, Accord Agency for Cooperation and Research and Development, where I joined in 1994, was a small NGO. It was a consortium with European and North American NGOs um, that had been created in the 1970s, really in the wake of the um, drought in the Sahel. And so was based in London, but, you know, had a, a different, it had a membership that took it elsewhere it was in London but not of London if you like and um, its ambition was always to decentralize it was all, all always to do itself out of a job that was quite unique I felt at the time but also I mean when I started at Accord I was just I just come out of university I was I'd done a master's at SOAS in African studies and that was on top of having done a, a French and history degree for my for my undergrad. 
And, you know, I did a brief stint on West Africa magazine, working with the um, the editor, just organ- sorting out his archives, really. I was, uh, I was very um, into West Africa. Anyway, it was my little uh, stint as an intern. And then three months later, I got this job. And um, three months after that, it was a genocide in Rwanda. And I got a job sitting on the desk, the you know, East Africa. And I really got that job because I spoke French and knew a little bit about Africa. But really, I spent my first few months translating documents uh, on the cheap for this NGO. And then Rwanda happened April the 6th, you know, and suddenly the world completely changed because I was then managing projects in what was then a francophone country, uh, Rwanda, and trying to get staff out of the country. And it was, I was describing it to my daughter the other day, um, and I'm still traumatized by that whole experience. It was my baptism of fire. And, you know, I spent weeks um, having contact, telephone contact with our colleagues who were hiding in their back gardens with their families, trying to get the UN to get them out. And it was too, it was kind of, you know, completely out of my depth. And it was, it was surreal because the telephone communications, it wasn't mobiles and it was just a landline were really good. But the chaos was so complete that, uh, yeah, it made you feel very, very impotent. And Anyway, it was it was the beginning of my journey, and that experience, my first job, has has um, really uh, molded and shaped my thinking. After having kind of come onto the development bandwagon as a as a nice way into Africa, but as really that experience really shaped um, what I then came to think of as my purpose in the space my engagement with conflict and security issues and so on so it wasn't just a common all <laughs> NGO in, in London it was really an opening into you know what happens in a genocide in particular but in a humanitarian what became a humanitarian crisis and seeing really the the industry kick into gear in terms of trying to manage that and the personalities who surface from nowhere and become very powerful and important and then a young girl of 20 when I was a young girl I considered myself like 22 suddenly having all this access to ministers to important personalities because I was part of an enterprise which was engaging in a very high profile crisis it it was a real baptism of fire that it does sound like you've thought about this a lot that there were takeaways or lessons that maybe didn't occur to you right away but you could see with the benefit of hindsight um the benefit of hindsight. As I said, I still feel quite traumatized by that event. That is not has not left me. So it's shaped the way I think about the space. And 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 you know, I think the the, the classic um, critique of the humanitarian space is yes, you know, all these young people, you know, being very gung ho, and you know, is an adventurism. There's an adventurism around the humanitarian space, which I. I can, I can get, but I think what I take away is really um, 
quite personal in terms of me as somebody who um, had very little experience and was suddenly thrown into a space where I was given, so I was just given so much power and I didn't have really, I wasn't deserving of it in any way. And that bothered me um, because it was so easy. It demonstrated how easy it was. It just demonstrated something which was so asymmetrical about the relationship, even though, you know, having nice Nigerian credentials and all the rest of it. So that was the first thing. But the second thing was um, that struck me was the, the sheer lack of professionalism and what's the word amateurism of the industry so they take a small girl who's just come out of her masters at SOAS and I mean and after the genocide a few months later they threw me in to go and do a huge research piece alone going traveling to Tanzania to Kivu to Uganda to collect evidence to talk to people to it was all very no, noble um but I just thinking back on it I think how irresponsible you know just to just go and do it and so there's something that was you know go and have a go bring it back it was very very problematic because we just had our most senior person in Rwanda fight for her life with her children she was Tutsi Okay, and so what was the organisation was interested in was a narrative that was balanced. Was also going to look at the Hutu side. A few months after the genocide, there was all, and they sent me off to do it. You know, and so I had to carry this. It was great, you know, in some ways. You know, I was doing this amazing piece of research, so called. At the same time, it was highly insensitive politically. You know, at that moment to be doing that, and I had to carry that. So that that. Um, experience and and my position within it has really kind of shaped you know my thinking about these issues you know how professional the sector can be how gung-ho it can be how the prevalence of young people with very little experience or expertise on anything in particular but by virtue of where they happen to find themselves and the ability to get a job just land in contexts that are deeply impoverished or in war and so on and there's something I still find very very disturbing about it and of course I'm I partake I've partaken in it but the way I've kind of managed to shield myself from the criticism that I could also that could also be leveled at me is like by taking steps out so momentarily in that journey since 94 I've taken steps back so I've worked with the Oxfams I've worked with Accord but I've taken time out in academia and had a very very different relationship with the with the context no longer being Madam Moneybags with an NGO but really actually being a (laughs) non-person And, and engaging in a very different way. way. And, I, and I think what I've enjoyed most, actually, was when I've been completely exposed. So uh, I did the job with Oxfam in uh, between, what, 1996, 97 and 2000. 
and I loved living in Senegal. I've got to, I've got to admit it. It was an amazing job, an amazing country. But, but to putting that to one side for a minute, as part of that job, oh, it was a regional office of Oxfam, and I had to go and uh, open up. It was a, Nigeria was under dictatorship at the time, Sani Abacha, and no Oxfam people could get visas to go in. I had two passports, so they sent me in first job. Six days in living in Dakar, I went to Nigeria. And uh, helped Oxfam set up, reset up its office. It'd been kicked out of Nigeria after the Biafra War in the 60s. Um, a, a little anecdote, I am, I am also from the, what would have been Biafra at the time, but putting that aside. You, I thought you might be, yeah. Yeah, with a name like Mwajaku, that kind of a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> but yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, you don't want to make assumptions, but so. <laughs> no, no, no. Anytime you see a Nigerian surname with an NW, you kind of, you kind of. <laughs> It's like, a, it's a kind of a giveaway. But anyway, so I went to Nigeria, opened up the program. I mean, started developing relationships for Oxfam there. And we got into this wonderful relationship with an organization, with Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth Nigeria, it was called at the time, still is actually. And they were doing lots of um, environmental activism kind of work. And Oxfam was funding them to do this wonderful environmental kind of awareness raising, documenting all the horrible things oil companies are doing. And uh, yeah, it all looked very nice. And then the more I got to know them, the more I understood that there's something much more interesting going on, which is a whole political movement. The political movement of like, it was fascinating. And so to get collectively, we all, all, all those people that I've been funding as part of Oxfam's attempt to, you know, work with environmental rights organisations, um, helped me construct an idea for a PhD, you know, to tell the story of what was really going on underneath. I mean, that, that allowed me to take off my Madam Money bags, Oxfam, all the NGO stuff, and really get down into the weeds and understand understand um the so-called develop the, the 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 development space as something other you know which was always a kind of yearning for me anyway as I started off by saying and so um yeah that was when I was I spent a year in Nigeria living in the Niger Delta in in traveling on the backs of motorbikes and taking public transport and pretending to be just local <laughs> you know and um it was it was it was great I mean it was scary you know a lot of the time but it was it was a different kind of experience that has really shaped shaped my perspective and my ability to see this development project from different angles you know, and that's what stays with me. I think you always have to have kind of a screensaver in this space. You know, what do you always come back to when someone's talking, I don't know, about some boring thing? And then, uh, you know, you just think back to your screensaver. Okay, well, why is this, why is this relevant or interesting or necessary? And then you make some choices about what you will carry on listening to. What would you encourage and what you might change? So, yeah, I think that layering of experiences helps me to manage and uh, continue to be in this space at the moment. 
So following that, I'm sure it's quite abrupt or um, inadequate to sum up by saying that you did a fair amount of work in academic jobs, which of course you did. But what I want to jump forward to, what interests me is that you went to a role with the OECD's Development Assistance Committee, which is really the very center of the the conventional aid apparatus. If we're talking about the development sector as a whole, this is this is kind of the high church. So sure, yes, potential for reform, but obviously will also be one thinks susceptible to the the pathologies you were just talking about. Can you walk me through that move? How did that play? I uh, spent a number of years in academia and 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 was very f- fortunate to have met and worked with and been supported by and encouraged by some top people who really cared about Nigeria, who were just class, just amazing academics, um, scholars rather than academics, scholars. And I and I was, um, I loved academic inquiry and the seriousness and robustness of, and rigour you know, um, associated with uh, with that endeavour. And, you know, I can quite easily kind of cut myself off and spend hours alone writing and reading. I really like that. However, I would find often that I would be like researching papers for ages, breaking my head over footnotes and then presenting to very tiny audiences. And thinking, really? <laughs> and <laughs> this, really? And my my sense was like, I wanted a bigger audience for my work. I wanted to be able to shape, use my intellectual inquiry to actually shape and change the way people were doing their stuff. I mean, that was really what it was about. Even though, you know, I did have big reservations about evidence-based so-called policy research and all of that, even though I'm in OGI, but I do find there there are issues about the way knowledge is constructed to fit purpose that restricts really the nature of academic inquiry. But that being said, I still wanted a bigger audience. And and, and just as an aside, maybe it's my ego... (laughs) You know, I, I I wanted to be an actor for a long, long time. This is not in your in my bio, but I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, from the age of about five to twenty, before I just started working with a, a chord, you know, I I I did theatre. I mean, theatre and drama and it was all part of my life. And in fact, before I got very into politics, I really wanted to be an actor. And I and I and I was with the National Youth Theatre, and I. My claim to fame was I acted with Daniel Craig. This is true. And uh, and uh, no, I was really, really into it. So I'm, I only say it because of the audience thing, you know, I, maybe I, I've just, it's my ego, you know, I just kind of need a bigger stage on which to sell my wares, right? And so in many ways, going to the OECD was an attempt to do that, to be able to engage with those so-called policymakers that were shaping, you know, the way business is done, the development business is done, uh, the way norms have been, standards being set, you know, I wanted to be part of that, even though, you know, 
I was kind of walking into it quite crab-like in some ways. Okay, the salary is fantastic. Let me just be upfront, you know, much better than that of an academic. But beyond that, beyond the salary, it was also just by wanting to kind of engage in that policy space. And for a number of familiar, you know, family reasons, we were in Paris and so on and so forth. So it seemed like an interesting um, path to, to explore right? So I got in there. I mean, and then it wasn't easy. I mean, let me just be honest, because this is also about career paths. I mean, and it's interesting, and I've had, and I've, I've reflected on this, you know, I had a PhD from Oxford. I had, by that time, at least seven, eight years experience working in, in the development sector. I also had postdoctoral research experience from Oxford, and I interviewed for many jobs at the OECD. I mean, got an interview, that's something, but was always presumed to be too academic, overqualified. And I always find, found that really disturbing because why would I find that disturbing? Because there are very few people like me. I mean, I'm not saying I'm so great or anything, but there are very few people with PhDs in politics of Nigerian parentage that have worked in the development sector that are putting themselves up for interview. And because I've got a PhD from Oxford and three years postdoctoral experience, it means I'm not that thick. So I found it quite difficult that my contemporaries or those who were interviewing me were so risk averse that they didn't feel it was like an easy walk through. So I was, I was concerned about that. But anyway, and eventually, and I'm going to be upfront with this, eventually when I got into the OECD, it was crab-like. So I was a maternity cover for somebody. Basically, I was a maternity cover. I was brought in at a grade much lower than my uh, what I should have got in on. And, you know, even the person that recruited me was like, you might not want to take this job because it's really not. I was like, don't worry, I'll take it. I'll just get in and then see. And yes, I got in and then saw and then it was fine and blah, blah. You know, I got a proper job. But that entry, the fact that it wasn't straightforward for someone of my caliber, my career path, speaks to what other things that are happening in the organization or a lack of I mean I'm going to be quite careful here but I did feel that given I was looking to enter the development space okay certainly the space in which principal client or donors I would have thought that it could be useful to have someone of my profile in there Anyway, I finally get in a job as the head of secretariat of the International Dialogue on Peace Building and State Building comes up. And um, I'd applied for this job before, by the way. <laughs> I didn't get it. <laughs> but anyway, it became me. And when it, might, it was first proposed to me, I was like, I don't want that job. You didn't want me. No, I, didn't want, I don't want the job. I want another job. I want the job which is just about shaping policy development in the donor space. I don't want the job which is about bridging, you know, people from developing countries, you know, from, from would-be fragile states and the OECD. I want the job that's just about shaping the thinking of donors working in context fragility. Still didn't get that job. Anyway, I took what was given to me and didn't imagine, of course, you know, I'm a bit of a, uh, what's the word? if I do something, I'm going to do it, right? I'm not going to not do it or half do it. So I really got into it and it became my own. And I fought tooth and nail 
to keep the conversation between donors and would-be fragile states going. And I say that because the job was basically trying to uh, monitor the, the, the implementation of commitments to doing things differently in fragile environments. OECD had worked for years on fragile states principles. This was uh, an initiative called the New Deal, signed in 2011, where donors were supposed to, you know, take country leadership seriously, not just uh, start to do sector-specific investments in fragile environments, but fund things which were about getting the politics right, getting security and justice right, all these very nice things, and also doing it in ways that were going to build the capacity of the countries. So I believed in this stuff. I mean, I really believed in it. And uh, but it was really, by the time I got <laughs> I there, the agenda had died. I mean, donors move on. They're very fickle. They move on, you know. And, and, and that was quite difficult to, to uh, reconcile myself with. But it was an interesting experience. I mean, I really saw from the inside what happens, not just as donors' priorities change, as the politics within donor countries change, and you, you, you see the so-called recipient countries sticking with a program from which donors have moved on politically. And you see the polit- how the politics of that plays itself out. You know, because the develop- that, that arena is very interesting. I mean, just from a theatre <laughs> the- perspective, you know, the OECD is the, 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 the diplomatic arena is a stage on which these in which these norms get played out, either deliberately or, or just by absence of things, you know. And so um, my role was really orchestrating that dialogue all the time, trying to get the people to <laughs> play their parts. And finally, at the end, being, it was beyond my capabilities to orchestrate something which was driven by political realities that were outside my control. So, but it was an interesting experience. And I was advised often, you know, by colleagues in the I never wanted to go join the OEC. I didn't want to be an international civil servant. It was not my my ambition in life to be an international civil servant. I'm getting that. But when I was, (laughs) when I joined, I was being constantly told by people, oh, you know, you've got to leave this initiative quite quickly and like find another way of securing yourself a much more interesting stable politically relevant for the OECD because the OECD than this little initiative that's like you know so marginal to the OECD's big bread and butter that but I was not convinced I was like oh no but this is really where it's And but now, I mean, with with distance, with some hindsight, I mean, I just kind of see see what I my position within that as part of a a political dynamic that was I wasn't when you're when you're in the thick of it and your sleeves are rolled up and you're just kind of you don't see. Um, but yeah, that's how I ended up there. To your question, yeah, that's quite. Um, I was going to say unbelievably cynical but it's it's completely believable uh it's profoundly cynical advice for people to tell you that to make your 
mark in a visible way on an initiative like that, which prioritizes um, quote unquote host country ownership, uh, but then move on quickly because you know it's inevitably going to die. That's quite a awful thing for people to be saying to you at the at the level of values. Yes, I mean. Most definitely, but I think, you know, that environment is, you know, and maybe it's a lot of international or multilateral institutions are like that. You know, the, 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 the people are so divorced in many ways from other realities and the salaries are so enormous relative to the surroundings that the value system becomes something quite different. It's it's an end in itself. And this is quite cynical, but I was constantly astounded by what do people used to refer to this as the golden whatever handcuffs or something. A lot of very unhappy people doing work that yeah they recognized was perhaps not exactly I mean people make compromises all the time in terms of what they would like and what they end up doing <laughs> but uh yeah but that was quite something that was quite something but it gives me at least a sense that I've as they say in French je fais le tour. I mean in that like, you know I've been around the houses you know on this one uh, I'm still learning I mean still learning, still loads to learn. I mean, this work I'm doing now, uh, it's, it's of a different, it's of, it's a different realm. It's a management job. And finally, after jumping on the, what's it, the sidelines all the time about this is wrong, that's wrong, this is terrible, oh my goodness, now I've got some power, so-called, to actually change things. I'm part of a leadership team, I'm expected to know stuff. <laughs> you know, what do you think of that? Oh, this is what I think. <laughs> what do I think? And that that's quite a challenge. And then managing people, you know, I've got a team of some 20 people managing, and, and that's something. But that's that's okay. Someone has to do it. And you know, it, it's not that someone has to do it. I mean, I think it's you know, I've 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 often lamented the lack of diversity. I think. Let me just put it. Let me call it that. The lack of diversity in all these organisations that would be in the business of development. It's, it's been mastering a lot, and for many years, and um, and so now I'm in a position where, irrespective of whether it's hard to manage twenty people virtually and have something to say about ev everything or anything and quickly google check things <laughs> I don't know what people are talking about secretly oh right okay that's what that means um but it's important that I'm here finally I'm here you know because what's it all for then all this investment the PhDs the years experience the postdocs being down with people on in the reality if I'm not able to occupy a position where I'm saying yeah this is what I think that's what I think because what's striking is that you know as I said my ambition was never to be international civil servant even to be part of development brigade it was like oh what's going to get me to know Africa better 
Um, it was not my mission, right? I wanted actually to be an actor, to tell you yeah. the honest truth. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and 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 I and I'm I write and I love theatre and I love singing and I so many, I've got a very. This is one of the things that I'm doing. It takes up a lot of my time and a lot of my space, but it's not the everything. And I think it's so important for people for whom that is the case, to be represented in this space. Why? Because it means that you have access to different kinds of networks that also need to be part of the conversation, or at least be screensavers when you're talking. So when you're talking about adaptive management and whatever, you've got in the back of, you might have in the back of your mind some other realities that are informing what you're allowing yourself to say as really worthwhile and important so so yeah even though it's like quite challenging I feel yeah I'm going to stick with this because you know it will open and only I will only stick with it if I'm able also to open up the space to make it more a more diverse um, enterprise and I think ODI is up for it right now so I'm really, I think I've come at the right time. Never knew Black Lives Matter would happen, really. <laughs> never knew, uh, you know, never knew COVID would happen uh, and where everything was up for grabs and people had to kind of reinvent their raison d'etre. And so it's a great time to be in this space. I mean, I remember when I was leaving the OECD, I I was kind of, what am I going to do next? I didn't quite know. I was thinking, that I'm done, I'm done, I'm done with the donors, done with development, not doing it. And I, and I spent a year doing other things, actually. I was sitting, sat on the Commission of Inquiry still and sitting on that Commission of Inquiry into oil pollution in Nigeria, worked with political communication consultants, uh, did bits and pieces, but wrote a proposal that never got went anywhere to do a, a piece, of work on the production of knowledge, production of knowledge and, and the way in which it was necessarily um, biased, right, in favour of a particular demographic, let's say. And, and it was came from my experience of being in the OECD and for an organisation that prides itself on objective data-driven knowledge the you know that a whole conversation was just absent yeah it, it rubbed me I mean it was conversations that we'd have you know some people who were non-white would have in the corridors like but never it was never something that people would uh, be able to speak aloud about and where I am now I mean that's because completely changed I was talking about it you know talking about it we're not doing that much, but talking <laughs> talking about it at least um, in ways that I couldn't imagine have been would have been possible even a couple of years ago. So I do think I do think it's a particular moment that's very ripe with possibilities. The uh, Im- hmm. current implosion of the UK aid sector, notwithstanding. Yeah, yeah, but then I think development or what, whatever that project is is not just about age you know and um it's not just about age and 
Um, you know, ODI, I mean, I'm not going to tell an ODI story, but they, 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 they've already pivoted and have been long time trying to pivot away from being just a development agency. It's going to take some time. I'll, 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 I'll perhaps finish on a, on a note that I find um, that, that, that speaks to me anyway. Development is not just about aid. And my issue from the beginning has always been in thinking about Africa, or let me just talk about Nigeria, which I know well, right? Think about Nigeria as a country for whom the aid budget is really minuscule relative to its other income. A country of 200 million people, maybe more, who knows? And where innovation and expertise is just like astounding, astounding. And I, and I remember I used to travel to Nigeria when I was working for Oxfam. I used to go to um, Nigeria regularly for this program that we were trying to set up. And I would uh, stay with, in, in Nigeria, we lived, when I was between the ages of three and five, we moved back to Nigeria. My parents had come to the UK to study. The war happened when they were in England, in, in Scotland and Newcastle. We eventually decided to go back, right? And I've written about this, by the way, in a small um, little short story. Anyway, we, 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 uh, we moved back and it didn't work out. They were on, we were on the wrong side, the losing side. My mum couldn't get a job. My dad was all right. But anyway, at one point, there was just a moment where we could still jump ship. And so we jumped ship. We went back to the UK and so on. However, the family, we when we were living in Nigeria, in Surulere, we, we lived upstairs and another family lived downstairs in a kind of masonette. And we kept in contact with this family. They had the same number of kids, each family. It was almost like we were mirroring each other. They stayed in Nigeria. We went to the UK. But it's really fascinating because when I started working for Oxfam and going to Nigeria, I would go and stay with them in Lagos, right? And sort of we became, came to know each other again. And what struck me in those conversations with those, what I call my cousins, they were not cousins, they were just our neighbours that became kind of like family, but just like they were just so far out. They were reading things I hadn't even thought about. They were just so thirsty for knowledge. They were more global than I could ever imagine myself to be. And so those conversations, always stay in the back of my mind. I'm recording them today from 20, 30 years on because it turned on its head this idea that what Africa needed was development and development assistance to get it set. Because there's so much going on. And so, yes, development aid is being cut and it's going to have consequences. But, you know, there are other things that will emerge. One thing, and this is the last thing I'll say, I'm really excited about is Nigeria's music scene. I have to end on that. Because, you know, I li- I turn on the radio in the morning. I, when I have my little jog in the morning, I listen to BBC One Extra. And it's all Nigerian Afrobeat. It's in my language. I hear music on Radio One from my home, you know, in my language. And a great Nigerian artist just won a Grammy for just, you know, Nigerian Afrobeat. And it's just massive. So for me, I know it's talking about music. It's not talking about development. It's talking about music. But for me, it speaks to the immense creativity that's going to get Africa out of its own rut. So it's bad. It's not great. You know, I'm not going to start saying as the director of the politics and governance team in ODI that it's not bad that aid hasn't been cut. It is. And it, it speaks to a whole agenda that I don't really want to get into. But 
the record is not over yet. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I, I lived in Congo for, for quite some time and it's... All right, well, you know what I'm dynamic, saying. Right? You go to Brussels or even Paris and the, the music is everywhere, the culture is everywhere. But at the same time, international engagement in the TRC is, is, is a basket case. It's profoundly dysfunctional. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, it's not. Th- oh, yes. Oh, yes. But I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this speaks to where we need to, this old arguments of uh, what's this guy talking about the politics of aid. I mean, if we invested more energy in addressing ourselves. To the politics of engagement rather than the development project in country itself, I'm sure. Uh, but it is complicated. But let's see. Let's see what we're brave enough to do when pushed to shove. I'm, I'm very excited about the possibilities that it might open up. What is necessity is the mother of invention or whatever. When, when there is abundance, it's not really when you're doing stuff. Uh, ultra quick one that I ask to everybody. Is there a, a book or a, a play, a podcast, something that was particularly influential for you or that kind of shaped your worldview? Mm, there are a number. Um, I have to mention Chimamanda, but everyone will talk about her. She's become famous now, so she no longer just belongs to me. <laughs> Chimamanda Ngozi <laughs> Don't think you uh, discovered that uh, obscure person. <laughs> you know, you, you know, so everyone loves her. Now. I'm really happy about that. But, you know, this has been a long love story from uh, 2000 onwards. You know, I let me just talk about half of the Ellis Sun and I have never seen the film. I don't know what it means, you know, but I'm just talking about the book. And it, it, it came quite late in my journey. But I think it brings together really well what I was trying to say about the bigger picture, the bigger project, that is this knowledge production and even enterprise of development, right? You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.